why don't you turn your idea into a great reality with Squarespace? They are a pal of this show, a friend of this show, because they want to help you get online. It's time you did. You're an amazing cracked fan. You've got all kinds of things in your head that belong on a website. Let's make it happen. How do we make that happen? I'm glad you asked that in those exact words out loud. Please head to squarespace.com slash cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. It is starting to feel like spring in the Midwest. I don't know about other regions or places. I'm, I'm very, very ignorant. But in the Midwest, it's starting to get warm. And that means it's starting to be time for the Cracked Podcast live tour. We are coming to Chicago, Illinois at the wonderful Lincoln Hall April 11th. Then we're heading to St. Paul, Minnesota at the Amsterdam Bar and Hall April 12th. Ticket links are in the footnotes to see us do one-of-a-kind live podcasts with amazing people, uh, and you just can't see us any other way in those places, as far as I know. So come on out, enjoy the show, and I hope I'll see you there. Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of The Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmitty the Champ. And I am also, also going to introduce you to someone who you have met in basically every facet of life. His name is Reference Man. And Reference Man is a 25 to 30-year-old white man uh, who's approximately 155 pounds in weight. And the funny thing about the world, here's a reason life is more interesting than people think it is, is that basically everything around you has been designed to fit him. Reference man. Just that fella. Uh, sorry if you're a different age or gender or build or anything else. Uh, it, it's just the way that the world has been set up. And that has incredible implications. One of them might be close at hand for you right now, the smartphone, a uh, device many people use to enjoy this entire medium of podcasting. The thing is, it's built for reference man's hand. It's very convenient and simple for him to hold his phone, um, but women's hands are on average 0.8 inches shorter than that reference man's hand. And so what happens is women have a harder time holding their phones. We're just sort of wondering uh, what the the uh, physical strain implications are of that for women. Also, I learned an amazing story about a journalist who was in Turkey in 2013 and trying to cover riots there by taking pictures on her phone of the riots. It was a Google Nexus, and the phone kept slipping. She found out they were basically useless because the men around her were doing one-handed photos. She couldn't do it. There are, I'm sure, a million stories like that where the phone was just not quite the right size for a woman to do what she wanted to do. There are other implications you might consider bigger as well. For example, the breast cancer rate in the developed world has shot up in the last 50 years. And at the same time, women have pretty much always on average been smaller people with thinner skin. Both those things affect our exposures as people to chemicals and to radiation. And so there's not enough data on it, but that might be part of why that cancer rate has shot up. And in particular, there's an issue with cars. The thing about crash test dummies is you recognize one in your head, right? Uh, well, a crash test dummy is built toward reference man's specs. 
So if you are a lady uh, and you're driving your car, you might technically be out of position just by sitting a little bit forward to reach the pedals and be comfortable in it. And that leads to much more dangerous outcomes for women in car crashes. 47% more likely to be seriously injured, 71% more likely to be moderately injured than a man. I learned that and many of the other stories and stats I just mentioned from one of the best books I've read in a long time. The book is called Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. The author is Caroline Criado Perez. She is a journalist, an author, obviously, a researcher, and an activist. Uh, We'll talk about all sorts of different things she's up to, and in particular, this book about how almost everything in our world is designed unconsciously or uh, very sexistly. It can be hard to parse, and we'll get into that too, but almost everything is designed for men. And that has not just, you know, I'm offended kind of implications. It has life or death implications. It's that kind of blind spot that uh, messes with our understanding of history or how to structure the entire world that we live in. I had a fantastic time talking to Caroline, and let's let you hear it right now because uh, there's just so much here in this show. Please sit back or sit just however you're most comfortable and lobby for more, uh, you know, female crash test dummies. They started rolling them out in 2011 in the U.S., uh, even though we've had crash test dummies since the 1950s. That's just not good. Pretty remarkable. Women have been around forever. Let's fix it, and let's enjoy this episode of The Cracked Podcast with Caroline Criado perez I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. And with with anything like this, I'm I'm always curious if if there was one particular thing that uh, kind of led you into doing this project. Yeah, there was. It was while I was researching my last book, I came across the information about heart attacks that female heart attack symptoms tend to be different to male heart attack symptoms. And I was just so shocked because I'd always been taught that heart attack symptoms are just heart attack symptoms, and everyone gets pain in the left chest and down the left arm yeah. and um, discovering that not only do women not tend to get those symptoms, in fact, only one in eight women experiences chest pain. So they aren't realizing they're having a heart attack and therefore aren't going to the doctor. Women t- tend to experience breathlessness, nausea, uh, indigestion, fatigue, and they don't realize they're having a heart attack, which obviously can be fatal. Um, yeah. <laughs> but it actually gets worse than that in that doctors are also missing female heart attack symptoms. And so even if women do go to the doctor, they are not necessarily getting diagnosed. And then even worse than that, even if they do happen to have, you know, heavily scare quoted the luck to uh, experience <laughs> chest pain. And so therefore, you know, the idea that they might be having a heart attack does occur to someone. The diagnostic tests that we've developed are based around the way a heart attack progresses in men. And so, for example, one of the tests is looking for blockages. Well, women may not present with blockages in the same way that men do. And so women are being sent home with chest pain that has been undiagnosed, but actually was a heart attack. And of course, again, that can be fatal. Discovering this in 2014 and being so shocked that I knew about the underrepresentation of women in culture. You know, I knew that women are underrepresented in the media, in films, in leadership roles, in politics. You know, we talk about that quite a lot. And that's something that I think a lot of people are aware of. But to discover that this underrepresentation 
seeps over into science, into medicine, into these areas that we are taught are objective. And of course, you know, I mean, if there's one place you'd think that men and women would be equally represented, surely it's in in medicine. And so discovering that these objective fields were in fact not quite so objective as we might have thought was um, pretty enraging. It's worth repeating, I think, for people at home that heart attack symptoms present differently in men and women. And, and until I read your book and, and then prior until you came upon it, I guess I guess we just didn't know, right? Like, it, it's amazing that it's it's not the thing that I'm used to from pop culture where, like, a character suddenly clutches their chest and falls over. It's a very, very yeah. different thing. Well, I mean, <laughs> the thing that's so shocking about the cardiovascular disease issue is that you know, the data bias crops up in all sorts of areas, and a lot of them are sort of fairly recent discoveries. But when it comes to heart attacks, you know, we've known about this for 20 years. We've known, I mean, women in the US, for example, um, since 1989, uh, heart disease has been the leading cause of, of death in US women. And since 1984, both UK and US women have been more likely to die following a heart attack than men. I mean, that's another thing that sort of makes me angry is that for some areas, it, it I do think it's just sort of a lack of thought. It's not recognising that women are 50% of the population. And I have my theories as to why that is, which we can go into if you're interested. But <laughs> it's harder to explain why, when we've known about this for so long, that you and I didn't know that the symptoms were different. You know, why haven't we been taught this? That is more difficult to understand and explain. Very early in your book, you sort of lead with the idea that history is an entire data gap, that we just <laughs> haven't bothered to track ladies across it. And and one of those ways is medical. Like there's a, a fact in there that all the way back to Aristotle, he was calling the female body a mutilated male body. That was how he <laughs> conceived of it in the first place. I'd imagine part of this issue is just that we haven't fully perceived of women as as a thing for uh, millennia that 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 seems uh, maybe a, a broad way to put it but maybe accurate no i mean that is that's good sum up basically of my <laughs> argument i sort of have to thank aristotle for putting it so plainly you know when he says yeah. the first departure from type is indeed that the male should become female you know the male is the type and women are the deviation and that is basically the way that we have always thought of it and kind of still continue to present it. And and I think that it's because it's such a pervasive way of thinking that we just don't even realise that we're doing it. And in fact, realising that I was doing that was kind of how I got into feminism in the first place. And I think was sort of ultimately why I ended up writing this book. I feel like it was a book I was always kind of going to write because of the way I got into feminism, which was when I was 25, I went to university as a mature student and I'd never really been political or engaged with feminism before. I didn't really know anything about it. All I knew about it was, you know, the sort of negative representations of it that I think a lot of girls growing up in the 90s sort of internalised, which is feminism is just kind of embarrassing. And, you know, the most important thing to say about feminism is that you're not a feminist. And and I guess I sort of felt that it was sort of embarrassing. But then when I, I got to university and I had to read for a paper on gender and language, and I was told to read this book called Feminism and Linguistic Theory. And that was basically the first feminism I'd ever read. And there was this section on the default male in language. Oh. <laughs> and I had sort of come across this before in a sort of 
as a way of sort of trivialising feminists. So talking about things like he to mean he or she and man to mean humankind. And so I'd sort of heard of this kind of thing, but I think like most people, when they hear about it without understanding the impact of it, they just sort of think, oh, that's just so stupid. Everyone knows he means he or she. You know, why are feminists wasting their time on something so trivial? But what this book told me that I had never heard before was that actually when women read or hear these words they picture a man. They're not equally likely to picture a woman, they picture a man. And that just kind of blew my mind because I realised, oh my God, I am picturing a man when I hear these words. But more than that, I just thought, how have I never noticed this? You know, I'm 25. How have I never noticed that whenever I'm picturing someone and they haven't specified that it's a woman, I'm picturing a man? And so that goes for things like he and human, but, you know, also doctor, lawyer, professional of any kind, journalist, politician. I'm always picturing men. And I kind of linked that into my in my head of, you know, is this why I've kind of grown up thinking that women just are a bit rubbish um, and feeling like, you know, like my sex is a barrier to overcome. And so I think because that was the way I got into feminism, in a way, that was one of the reasons why this discovery that male default isn't just a thing that has led to me feeling a lack of confidence in in women, but also actually is leading to women dying because everyone does it, including medical researchers. I'm, I'm glad we led with heart attacks because I feel like there is that sort of broad stereotype of feminism by people who are opposed to it or not into it, where they hand wave a lot of it as trivial. Like, oh, you're mm-hmm. just worried about whether we use the correct pronouns for the correct things. That That isn't mm-hmm. really important. But so many of the things in this book are life or death or, or yeah. extreme medical things or, or extreme design things that should be noticed. But I have been criticized for having included things that you know, aren't life-threatening in the book. And and I've had certain criticisms saying, okay, sure, the car crash stuff and the heart attack stuff <laughs> and, you know, the disaster stuff, okay, that's important. But why are you talking about pronouns and why are you talking about, you know, not being able to reach things on the top shelf and why are you talking about smartphones being too big? And, you know, I did that deliberately. It, it will shock you to hear. <laughs> I actually thought about how to write this book. And it was really important to me to emphasise that these are not isolated incidents and that you can't fix them one by one. You need to address the entire pervasive culture because they are all linked to this way of perceiving the world as male. And I actually think as well that, you know, when it comes to the cultural underrepresentation of women, that is hugely important too because, you know, if we had a world where women were equally likely to appear in the news media and equally likely to have speaking roles in films, women are only 28% of speaking roles in Hollywood films, for example, I don't think we would be in this position that we just weren't noticing that women weren't making up half of our research subjects. But people really don't notice. And, and I think you can tell that they don't because... I mean, in the UK, for example, the few times there's been an all-female panel on certain news programmes or news shows, Twitter just lights up with people complaining about it, pointing it out. But the numerous times that there have been male panels, you know, over the decades, no one's, you know, uttered a word. And for example, I ran a campaign in the UK to get the first female statue of a woman in Parliament Square, which is sort of an incredibly high profile square immediately in front of the House of Commons. And one of the main things that people have said to me is, 
I have walked through that square so many times. How have I never noticed that there are 11 statues of men and not a single woman there? But it's because we're so used to it. We just we just don't notice. And, you know, these are these are not just sort of men or misogynistic men or anything like that. These are women, feminist women, but we all do it. I apologize for not being aware of that statue campaign. And who was it a statue of that you you got? So Millicent Fawcett was instrumental in getting women the right to vote in the UK. She collected signatures for the first petition to be handed into the Houses of Parliament, asking for women to have the right to vote. And that was when she was 19. I think that was in 1866. And then she was up in the Ladies' Gallery in uh, 1928, watching the Equal Franchise Act get passed. And then she died in 1929. So she basically spent her entire life fighting for women to have the right to vote and then the right to equal votes with men. So she's an incredibly important figure. But this is not only the first statue of a woman in Parliament Square, it's also the first statue of her ever. We have a memorial to her husband (laughs) in Westminster Abbey, (laughs) but no statue of her until now. And someone like that, you know, of such huge political significance and importance, if she were a man, there's just no doubt in my mind she would have had way more than one statue by this point. But we just don't really remember women. You know, it's not a vast conspiracy. And I, and I don't for one second think that, you know, there's a sort of cabal of doctors wanting women to be more likely to die following a heart attack or, you know, of, of car designers wanting women to be more likely to die if they're in a car crash. It's simply the product of a way of thinking. And in a way, right. you know, that makes it harder to think, to fix because we don't realise we're doing it. But on the other hand, you know, it makes it easier to fix because it's not deliberate, it's not malicious. And if we can just get our head around the fact that we're doing it and put in systems in place to fix it, then it should be fairly easy, if not quick. I mean, this is going to take a while, but it should be fairly easy to put in place processes to start fixing this. Oh, absolutely. Also reminds me of another uh, campaign you're involved in to keep a historical woman on British money. Uh, because they were going to remove, uh, I believe it was Elizabeth Fry, which would have meant that other than the Queen, there wouldn't be any uh, women on British money. Uh, and uh-huh. you helped lead a campaign to get Jane Austen onto the the ten pound note. Yes, but the apparently the Bank of England called it a quote disproportionate fishing expedition. When you began the process. (laughs) Wow, you've really done your research. So, yeah, so basically they were going to remove uh, Elizabeth Fry and it was going to be an all-male lineup. And so I, yeah, started a campaign saying you have to have a woman (laughs) on the back of the banknotes. The fishing expedition was in relation to a court case. We were going to take the bank to court under the public sector equality duty, which basically says that in the course of its decision-making process, a public body has to take into account the need to promote equality of opportunity and eliminate discrimination. And they don't have to actually do those things, but they need to show that they've thought about it and have thought about how their decision is going to either help or or hinder that. Um, Mm. And you'd sort of expect that if they find it's going to hinder that, they wouldn't make that decision. So... What we were trying to do was to get hold of their decision-making process to see whether they had actually thought about this or not. And so that's what they were saying was a fishing expedition. But actually, (laughs) you know, 
It is incredibly important because when you look at the criteria by which they were deciding who gets to be on the back of a banknote, obviously they called them objective selection criteria. But like so many things that we call objective, actually they're highly subjective. So the criteria were that the historical figure must have good artwork, must have good name recognition and must not be contentious. And, you know, immediately you sort of see, well, now I see why you have an all-male, all-white lineup, because the reality is that, you know, before about 10 minutes ago, anyone other than a white man is unlikely to have good name recognition. And we were just talking about how a lot of people haven't heard of Millicent Fawcett, who is you know, without doubt, incredibly important. Well, and, and honestly, I, I had not heard of Elizabeth Fry until I started uh, looking her up, amazing prison right. reformer well, and I'll all these different you, things. Well, I'll forgive you because you're not from Britain. But, oh, probably, <laughs> but yeah. the thing is, <laughs> a lot of people in Britain haven't either because we don't tend to learn about women in history. And so women get forgotten. And, you know, this has been going on for a very long time. There's a quotation that I find just kind of heartbreaking, which is by Clara Schumann, who is, you know, one of the few female composers that that we do still remember. Mm-hmm. And she wrote in her diary, I'm not going to remember the exact words, but something along the lines of, I used to think that I could compose, but I've given up this idea. Um, no woman before me has been able to, so why should I think I could? And the, the sort of tragedy of that is actually there had been loads of incredibly successful female composers who came before her, you know, composers who'd been fated in like the Austrian court alongside Mozart, one woman called Barbara Strozzi, who had more pieces in print than any other composer in her lifetime, including men. There are quite a few f- examples of women who had been very successful, very famous in their day, but as soon as they died, they got forgotten. Or another favourite, of course, is to attribute the work of a woman to a man. So there's quite a few famous examples from the art world. Um, An artist called Judith Leister, for example, she was the first woman to be allowed into an artist's guild in the Netherlands. Again, really famous in her time. But after she died, her work was attributed, I think, to her husband, I mean, there are various uh, sort of famous examples of that from the science world as as well. I think that people are becoming more aware of, of female scientists who um, have been written out of history and their, I don't know, their supervisor took credit for their work or, or whatever it is. Um, so there's all sorts of ways that, that women are written out of history. For one thing, that historical process in, in the book you pick out that I believe he's in the current UK government. His name's Michael Gove and is uh, helping to push for a it's it's described as like a back to basics history curriculum mm-hmm. but it seems to pretty much take women out of history except for one bit in the book just under the header of the changing role of women you know as if yeah. they like started to be invented in the 80s or so and then <laughs> and then help out them it's it seems like this process kind of happens very gradually all the time and maybe because there are those uh, sort of like the Bank of England um, uh, uh, requirements of saying, well, they have to be super famous already and not contentious. And and if you think all women are contentious, then then there you go, you're stuck. Yeah, most women who have made it into history are contentious. You know, you, yeah. You, How about that? Again, until very recently, you couldn't be in the public eye unless you were extremely contentious. I mean, you know, someone like Jane Austen is basically only 
allowed to be remembered because of the amazing job her family did of presenting her as this incredibly well-behaved, ladylike, unassuming woman who just sat in a corner and scratched on her little ivory. The reality is that it takes a very little analysis and, and reading of Jane Austen to recognise that she was actually incredibly subversive and there's no way she was, you know, a good little lady who liked the way that her society was set up. I mean, her books are absolutely raging against that, but she does it in this incredibly subtle and intelligent way. So the Bank of England has a quotation for all of the banknotes that sort of relates to the whoever the historical figure is. And the quotation they chose for Jane Austen is, I declare there is no enjoyment like reading. And it's just so clear some, I don't know, some poor intern at, at the Bank of England was told, <laughs> quick, Google, you know, reading quote from Jane Austen to shut this annoying woman Caroline up. <laughs> but the the you know, if you actually read the novel, it's from Pride and Prejudice, and that is spoken by another annoying Caroline, Caroline Bingley. And she is actually <laughs> saying that just after she's put a book down, and that book happens to be volume two of the book that Mr. Darcy is reading. And as we know, what Caroline Bingley actually wants is to get into Mr. Darcy's pants. And, you know, the, the line is just sort of dripping with irony and an awareness of the ways women are sort of forced to behave to try and catch a man because that was the only way that they could survive. Um, you know, yeah. they had no other way of, of earning money. And so that line is this is a sort of unintended, very feminist statement by the Bank of England, but they just think it's a sort of facile statement <laughs> about how much Jane Austen loves reading. I, I like that that got in there. How about that? <laughs> uh, and representation in general, I mean, your book has so many amazing stats on representation in pop culture. You, you mentioned the amount of speaking roles for women. It was 28% in G-rated movies uh, over uh -huh. a decade and a half. There was a 2007 study of over 25,000 international TV characters found only 13% of the non-human characters were female and 32% of the human characters were female, which is lower than the population breakdown. <laughs> there, that yes, seems fixable. <laughs> and then also, uh, there's so much in there about politics, too. Uh, it, it seems like our that sort of head default you mentioned before of think of a politician, the person that pops up as a man, that seems to be a not totally intractable obstacle because there are things we can do, but it seems baked into almost every country. Yeah, it does. It's not just politician. It's sort of... Politician, I suppose, is in a way worse because we associate power and leadership with masculinity. It's still at heart this thing about the male default. I mean, there's one study that I thought was so fascinating um, that really kind of sums up the whole book in a way, which was um, looking at what people picture when they hear one of five gender neutral words and I'm only going to remember four of them but since you seem to know my book so well much better <laughs> than I do maybe you'll remember what they are person okay, yeah. user participant researcher what's the fifth one <laughs> I am um, uh, you give me too much credit I'm not that good but uh, but it's that kind of thing yeah <laughs> and men pictured a man so they were asked to picture whatever it was and then draw what they pictured and men pictured a man 80% of the time for the word person. I think for the word researcher, they were more likely to draw a person of no gender than to draw a woman, which I think is 
interesting. And and it wasn't just the men. So like for person was the one word that uh, women were pretty much 50-50 on. So women are aware that women are as likely to be a person as, as men are. Um, <laughs> but for all the other words, user, participant, researcher, women were also heavily biased towards towards men. And I think that that is a really important point to make. A, because it really shows how this is an unconscious bias that we all suffer from, but also that people often will think, oh, well, a woman does it, so it can't be sexist as a kind of gotcha, you know, checkmate feminists. This woman <laughs> says pinching her ass is okay. Um, okay. So so I think it's really important to understand that this isn't just a thing that men are doing. It's a thing that women are doing as well. And that just because women are also affected by the sexism that exists in society, that doesn't mean that it's not sexism. It just means that it's so pervasive that even women suffer from it. In the book, you find that not only is it hard for women to get elected to a a substantial number of offices, but then also once they're in office, you had a a study that they did on members of the U.S. Congress uh, that found in 2015 that male congressmen were two times or more likelier to interrupt uh, female members, even though mm. everyone has the same gig. They're all they're all some kind of rep or senator. There's no hierarchy there. Well, there's two things I think are particularly interesting. Maybe three things. Let's see. Yeah, um, great. So <laughs> one of the things <laughs> I find really, really interesting that I think really answers the question of why does it matter having female legislators, do they actually make a difference? And the answer is yes. You know, studies from around the world, across the OECD and, you know, countries beyond the OECD show that the proportion of female legislators you have in a parliament or whatever you call the the legislative body does make an impact, a tangible impact on the bills that get passed. Women are much more likely to promote and support and debate women's rights And the amount of money that gets spent, for example, on education and social care goes up in accordance with the number of women. And then you've got the issue, as you said, of of interrupting, but actually not just interrupting. There's also quite disturbing evidence about how male legislators respond to an increase in female legislators. So, for example, if a human rights bill is framed as a women's rights bill, Male legislators are less likely to sign it. This was study in America, I think. Also, if a bill is sort of too heavily sponsored by women, again, male legislators are less likely to support it. And this wasn't just in America. This was in in a couple of countries that the, the research was done that legislators, male legislators are more hostile and more sexist towards female legislators once a certain number of female legislators, you know, once a certain threshold has been passed. And then you tie that in with this absolutely fascinating study looking at the difference between women in the Republican Party versus women in the Democrat Party and looking at why is it that it seems to be easier for female Republicans to sort of rise up to the top compared to female Democrats, you know, when Democrats are supposedly meant to be the anti-sexist party in America. Hmm. And basically what this research suggested was that because there are so comparatively few female Republicans, 
Republican men don't see them as a threat in the same way. So they're able to be oh. tokens. And, and so therefore, it's okay if that woman gets ahead. I mean, it's kind of like the conservatives in, in the UK. They've had two female leaders. And that's okay, because there aren't that really, really that many women in the party. And so Margaret Thatcher and Theresa May is allowed to be a leader because she doesn't, you know, she's an exception. They can see them as exceptions. Oh, Whereas yeah. in the Democrat Party, there are so many women that they actually represent a threat to male power. And <laughs> so the men in the Democrat Party were excluding the women because they couldn't be seen as exceptions. That, you know, there was a suggestion that, oh, actually women maybe are competent. Oh, dear. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that is that is a bit depressing. But, I mean, I think it does explain, you know, a trend. I mean, this is something that, that we talk about a lot in the UK and certainly that the Conservative Party likes to hold over the Labour Party so the Labour Party, like the Democrat Party, is the left-wing party and likes to present itself as the progressive party and yet has never elected a female leader. And the Tories have elected two female leaders now. And this is something that they often say as a way of sort of pushing back when Labour tries to call the Tories sexist, which, by the way, they absolutely are, but <laughs> so is Labour, so whatever. But, you know, it's a similar dynamic that when women are seen as as representing a threat, even the progressive men don't like it. Yeah, because there's one another thing in the book where it comes up that there was a 2017 study that found that when white male leaders describe diversity as a good thing, they get praised for it. But when more diverse leaders describe diversity as a good thing, uh, opinion of them dips a little bit. And it almost mm -hmm. seems to be because they're reminding people that they are diverse and oh no, yeah. you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but I mean, again, I think that that really puts a pin in the argument that, oh, a woman said it isn't sexist or a black person said it isn't racist, therefore it isn't. Because the the reality is that women who, you know, fight on behalf of their sex get punished for it. And so yeah. there is an incentive, there's a social incentive to be that woman who says, no, this isn't sexist. No, I don't have a problem with it. And I know that from firsthand experience, because certainly growing up in my teenage years and in my mid-20s, I was 100% that woman. Um, I know how intoxicating it is to be that woman. And I think that if you don't have feminist analysis, if it hasn't been presented to you in a way that you understand, it's much easier to just be the exception, to think, oh, well, other women are rubbish and I'm going to be an exception. So you're saying that kind of before you uh, came across feminist uh, ideas and messaging, I guess, especially in your mid-20s, you were uh, someone who was outspoken against it. Is, is that right or no? I mean, I, wouldn't, I wasn't sort of like actively involved because I wasn't really political. But if you'd oh, asked sure. me, I would have said feminism is stupid. Yeah, absolutely. And I would have said that feminists are, you know, women are equal now. Feminists are just complaining about nothing. All the, you know, the lines that you're used to hearing. Um, from people yeah. who don't really understand feminism and don't know the data and don't know the evidence, I would definitely have said that because you get you get rewarded for it. And and I think it's easier to see when you don't understand that this is a structural issue. It's sort of easier to see how to navigate the world as a woman by saying that kind of thing, because it's easier to be the exception than to stand up for all women. It just, you know, it just is. So, I mean, I don't think that I was thinking about it very hard and going about it in that particular way. It was just basically that I had bought the myth, the stereotype of what women are like and believed it to be true, despite not knowing any women like that. You know, I believed that women were 
hysterical and over-emotional and trivial and superficial and all the things that films portray women as, that the magazines that are aimed at women say that we are. You know, like in the in the UK, you get sort of the Daily Mail, which is the highest circulating newspaper. It has a section called Female, you know, and that's sort of aimed at women and it's a sort of lighter read. And that's <laughs> basically how women are treated. And it's so pervasive I don't know. I guess I just wasn't smart enough to question it. I just sort of accepted it. I accepted that this is what's aimed at women. Therefore, this is what women are like. And I just happen to know lots of really great women, but we're all exceptions. And and I think together with the way that feminism was demonised in the 90s, I don't know what it was like in America, but certainly in the UK, feminism was hugely demonised in the 90s. You just sort of went along with it and thought feminism stupid. Women are stupid. Um, I'm just going to have to try and uh, have people recognize that I'm not like them. From what I know of of U.S. messaging then in the 90s, it was a lot of like, if someone is a feminist, there's some sort of strange hippie who like doesn't bathe. And like there were all mm. sorts of like horrible stereotypes out there. It does seem like maybe the messaging is getting better. I don't know. I, I feel like I also learned quite a bit about feminism only once I got to higher ed, you know, as much as I've learned Mm -hmm. about it. But I wonder if maybe there are ways that that messaging can reach people more effectively outside of uh, specific things like a college, you know. Well, I think that actually for all its huge faults, and it has huge faults, social media has actually been revolutionary for women. Oh, great. Yeah. It has given women a voice that they've never had before. You know, before we had mainstream media gatekeepers and they just did not consider women's lives and women's voices to be as relevant or as important. And they still don't. You know, worldwide, women make up, I think it's 13% of subjects that are spoken about or written about or heard about across the worldwide media. I mean, that is ridiculously tiny. And that number has been the same since 2010. I mean, that that figure comes from 2015 because that's the most recent stat they do in every five years, gender audit. So they're due for another one in 2020. But between 2010 and 2015, that number did not get better. I think that it's unsurprising that feminism and women's issues were being represented in this way because we didn't have a public platform. We didn't have access to a megaphone to get women talking and for women to speak to each other. And social media has really blown that apart. And I think that is a huge reason behind the explosion of feminist literature and feminist awareness and women speaking publicly about all sorts of issues that just weren't spoken about before. Many thanks to our friends at Squarespace for helping make this show possible, The Cracked Podcast. They want to put it on the air, and they want to help you out. This isn't about me. This isn't about the podcast. This is about you having your own website to show off who you are. Maybe you make things. Maybe you want to sell things. Maybe you write things, photograph things. Maybe you just want to have a cool domain name that you can tell people when you meet them. They're like, oh, I, you know, see you later. And you can be like, before you go, hey, me.com. And they'll be like, how did you get me.com? And you'll be like, this is just an example. It's actually my whole name. And they'll be like, that makes more sense. You can have a much more streamlined version of that conversation if you work with Squarespace. Because they make buying domains simple. That way you can get exactly the, the URL and the web address you want. And then from there, you can use a beautiful template created by a world-class designer to customize just about anything you want that website to do 
while it looks great, and while it's optimized for mobile from jump, right out of the box, it will look good on phones, tablets, and the other fun futuristic devices that we all use to uh, read the internet. Also, to listen to podcasts. So you know about it, you get it, you're very, very wise, and you have a cool device. Squarespace empowers millions of people like you, cool devices or not, to turn great ideas into something real. So head to squarespace.com cracked for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use the offer code cracked to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com cracked, offer code cracked. One thing to repeat from the top of the show, the Cracked Podcast is going on tour very, very soon. April 11th in Chicago, April 12th in St. Paul, Minnesota. Shows with comedians, historians, and more amazing guests all coming together. Ticket links are in the food notes. I, I love that social media has helped uh, in that huge way, and it seems like that's maybe a stroke of luck uh, that it's helped at all because there, there's amazing things in the book about the tech industry uh, who would have mm -hmm. built these platforms and <laughs> they're they're overwhelmingly male it's 93 percent of vcs are men they mostly tend to hire other men because that's just what they're used to because they're themselves i'm just very glad that that industry has happened to provide anything useful to women because it seems pretty uh, overwhelmingly tilted when you look at the darker side of social media you know, a lot of that is because of the way it's been designed and it's been designed by people who don't experience this kind of harassment. And so it hasn't occurred to them to design it out. This isn't social media, but I thought it was a really interesting example of the way that, you know, even the most well-meaning men have blind spots. So um, it was a VR game. And this woman using it got repeatedly groped by another user. And the creators of the game said that they just felt so stupid that they hadn't thought of this. They said, we thought about some annoying person trying to block your view of the game. And so they'd created this protection bubble, which meant that you could stop people from putting their hands in front of your face. Yeah. But they hadn't thought of extending it to the whole body because they hadn't considered the possibility that someone would be trying to grope you. Um, <laughs> and, you know, let's just reiterate, this is virtual reality. So that feels like you're actually being groped. You know, that's, you know, your brain is tricked right, into thinking right. things are real. So, and they, and they, you know, immediately fixed it. And I mean, I think in, similarly, an anecdote that I really love because again, I think it really highlights this issue of blind spots and the importance of representation is Sheryl Sandberg in her book Lean In talks about when she was working at Google and it was already a pretty big company by then and she was struggling to walk across the car park when she got pregnant and she was in a senior enough position to be able to go in and say to the head of Google, uh, you have to put in pregnancy parking. And right. he said... Yes, absolutely. I had never thought about that. And she says in the book that she felt bad that she'd never thought about it either until she got pregnant. But actually, that just is exactly the issue and is exactly why we need representation. There is no reason someone who hasn't been pregnant should know that it's difficult to walk across the car park. Unless, of course, they're clever enough to recognise, hmm, we have some female employees Women tend to have different bodies to men. Maybe we should find out if they have any needs. So obviously Google right. could have done that. They could have been proactive. But the reality is it usually takes a woman being in a position of power and a woman who is aware of the specific need that women might have 
for that kind of thing to get changed. Yeah, I'd imagine at least a few of the staff there were the product of a pregnancy. You know, it seems pretty yeah. common. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, especially Apple in the book. Like, it, uh, they apparently they opened a new headquarters in 2017, called it the best office building in the world. And then it didn't have any sort of child daycare center, uh, which is a thing yeah. that some offices have where people have thought of it. I mean, I do find that one quite staggering. Um, you know, yeah. for example, the health tracker app where Apple you know, allowed you to track your copper intake, but not your period. Um, (laughs) You sort of think, okay, that was incredibly stupid. And that was clearly a product of not having enough women on your team, because it really wouldn't have taken many women for someone to have said, guys, women track their periods. Probably one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. but, But by the time they'd had that scandal, and the scandal about Siri being able to find you Viagra, but not an abortion provider, you would have thought that by that point, someone at Apple might have said, right, before we do our next big launch, let's just make sure we haven't forgotten the women. Um, (laughs) And uh, yeah, so that's kind of staggering. But I guess in a way, it it sort of helps prove the point that this is just so baked in that we think of what men need as the default, as the human default, and just don't remember the things that women need. And just to for for people who haven't read the book, I'm not saying that, you know, men can't or shouldn't look after kids. Absolutely they can and absolutely they should. But the reality is that women do 75% of the world's unpaid care work. So it's much more likely to be a woman who's going to need a crash at work than a man in the current setup of the world. And also with the, the setup of things like uh, that fitness uh, tracker and health tracker and then just everything else, it's staggering how many items and objects and cars and just things that humans have constructed are built for uh, what you call reference man. They're built mm. speci- for a specific size and type of male human, even though there's a range of humans. Yeah, it is. It's kind of staggering, particularly given how sort of serious the effects can be. And and I mean, the car one is actually interesting and, and depressing at once, because actually, when car crash test dummies were first being introduced, there actually was a discussion about including a female as well as a male car crash test dummy. But actually, car manufacturers pushed back against that legislation on the basis <laughs> that it would be too expensive. And so that's oh, no. how we ended up with the 50th percentile male as representing humanity. It's it's so staggering how often that excuse crops up. I mean, that obviously is incredibly shocking. But it also happened when the legendary architect Le Corbusier was coming up with his modular man, which was meant to be representing the human scale in architecture. So buildings should be built around humans. Great revolutionary idea, except modular man is in fact a man. In fact, he's a six foot man. Weirdly, a British detective was specified. I have no idea why, but anyway. Um, <laughs> and and supposedly they did consider having modular woman, but the female body was rejected as a source of proportional harmony. So how about that? <laughs> um, and and sort of less amusingly, although obviously the car crash stuff isn't amusing. I mean, women are 47% more likely to be seriously injured, 17% more likely to die if they're in a car crash. And a lot of this because the tests have been based around this 50th percentile male. And so women, for example, 
have to sit much further forward than is safe in order to reach the pedals, for example, and yeah. to see over the dashboard. But uh, yeah, you still get this excuse about women being basically too complicated and it being too expensive. You get it from medical researchers. Like today, in the 21st century, in 2019, researchers are making this argument. It may sound reasonable until you realise that the more research we do on sex differences the more we realise that actually sex matters when it comes to the progress of a disease to how a drug will interact. For example, women are much more likely to have an adverse drug reaction than men. So the most common adverse drug reaction is nausea. But the second most common adverse drug reaction is simply that the drug doesn't work. I just want to sort of expand that by comparing it to a study that unusually was done on male and female cells because the vast majority of set of studies from human studies to animal studies to cell studies, which is where clinical trials start, are done in males. Um, we've made yeah. some progress when it comes to humans, a little bit of progress when it comes to animals. And basically, there's, well, I mean, there's no legislation about cells because there's just not really a recognition that cells really matter. But, well, listen to this and decide for yourself. So <laughs> they exposed male and female cells to estrogen to see whether the cells would be able to use the estrogen to fight off a virus. And the female cell was able to use the estrogen to fight off a virus and the male cell wasn't. And you just think if they had been doing that study just in male cells, you would have concluded oh, well, estrogen doesn't help with anything, so let's not bother progressing that treatment any further. And when you combine that with the fact that the second most common adverse drug reaction in women is that the drug doesn't work, you just think, how many drugs have we missed out on for women because they didn't work at the cell trial stage for men? And I, I can't put a figure on it, but I suspect it's pretty high. I mean, another example that has got pr people pretty fired up is um, the Viagra example, Oh yes. which is... <laughs> um, so Viagra was discovered in obviously an all-male trial for a heart medication and it turned out that Viagra wasn't great at solving this particular heart problem but it had this wonderful side effect and they knew about this wonderful <laughs> side effect because all the trial participants were men and within a couple of years you know Viagra had been fully tested and it was on the market and men were having erections and everyone was very happy in 2013, a researcher tried a small-scale trial using the active ingredient, which I'm not going to try and pronounce, to see if it would help with period pain. And he ran out of, of funding, so wasn't able to prove the primary hypothesis. But basically, the initial results suggested that, indeed, this could provide four hours of pain relief with no side effects. And he tried to, and I mean, any woman listening to that will just be, you know, falling off her chair at this point <laughs> because we are desperate for <laughs> some right. kind of pain relief. There just isn't really anything out there. And a lot of women, really, myself included, really struggle every month with very, very cripplingly bad period pain. And he tried to get funding twice from the National Institute of Health and both times was declined basically on the basis that it wasn't a public health priority. And... You know, I, I just sort of think back to that original trial and wonder if women had been included in the trial at that stage, you know, when there was still money to be made from 
find using this drug in some kind of way. Would pharma companies at that point, you know, maybe the National Institute of Health doesn't think it's a public health priority. I mean, let me tell them it certainly is. But leaving that aside for one moment, you know, private pharmaceutical companies might have thought, well, we can make a lot of money out of this. After all, women get period pain and they want a solution. Right. Um, but by this point, it's too late. There's not really any money to, made for, to be made from it because it's a generic drug by this point. So basically, oh, wow. women are not going to get period pain relief in that way anyway. And, and I, I felt silly not knowing more about it and, until I read about it, but uh, period pain affects 90% of women, which, which I had a sense of, I think, but uh, it impacts the life of one in five so much that it interrupts daily life. They need to stay home, recuperate and, and deal with it. And we are uh, not developing things to work on it. It's crazy. Right. Another example that made me so angry. I was very angry a lot of the time writing and researching this book, but I came across this amazing study in the UK. So women around the world, I think it's 830 women die giving birth every day worldwide. Wow. So it's a lot of women dying in childbirth. And a pretty high proportion of those women will be because they've had to have an emergency cesarean because their contractions aren't aren't working. Uh, their uterus has, has failed. And in a lot of countries, having an emergency cesarean is pretty dangerous, including, I have to say, America. America has a very poor, has the poorest rate of survival in the developed world, particularly for African-American women. I think the the likelihood of an African-American woman dying in childbirth is 243% higher than yeah. a white woman in America. It's just, it's so staggering. I, every time I say it, I can't quite believe that that's true. There is an obvious public health uh, impetus here to try and deal with uterine failure. And this woman working in Liverpool came across the fact that basically one of the issues with uterine failure, that women who whose uteruses failed were more likely to have a uh, more acid blood pH. And so she thought, well, let's see what happens if uh, we give these women an antacid before we give them oxytocin, which is the only drug that exists for uterine failure. And it only works 50% of the time. And the difficulty with that is that there is currently no way of discerning whether or not a woman is going to respond to oxytocin. So every woman has to go through it and 50% of them will just have, you know, be in labour for hours and hours and hours. It'll be incredibly traumatic and then eventually they'll get their emergency caesarean. Wow. She did this within the ward trial. So it wasn't a clinical trial. There were loads of variables. So on that basis, the fact that she found that giving 50%, that the women who took an antacid were 25% more likely to give birth vaginally is incredible because it wasn't targeted. The amounts weren't, you know, the doses weren't measured. It was just very, very on the job and it had this huge impact. And so you would think something like that, like it's a really low cost intervention without even doing a proper clinical trial with loads of variables sort of sorted out. Um, it had a huge impact. 830 women a day are dying around the world giving giving birth. This seems to be a very, very clear case of something that should get funding. So she heard about this funding in the UK from the General Medical Council that was specifically aimed at health issues, um, improving health issues in low and middle income countries. And low and middle income countries, of course, were 
a substantial number of the deaths in childbirth are taking place. And she was turned down because, again, it wasn't seen as a priority. I honestly don't know how to explain that. I don't understand how anyone can think that this isn't something that isn't worth being funded. It absolutely is. Women are dying. And on top of it, someone's come up with a really cheap solution. They should be biting her hand off. At the very least, it should be as high of a priority as male erection enhancement. You know, there right. should be exactly. at, at least as an equal bucket of money for... Right. You know, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that, that that's not a health issue that shouldn't get researched. Of course it is. And of course it should. But it's not more important than women dying in childbirth. <laughs> and it's not more important either than women being in incredible pain five days every month. In terms of the the overall research in the book, it's it's a really, really remarkable set of things you put together, I think, because it's both a set of incredible statistics and then also incredible lacks of statistics. Like you, You've really knitted together like what we know and also what we should be researching medically and just finding out about in general. What are some kind of exciting solutions in terms of just getting more of this data in the first place about uh, everything from car crashes to medicine to to media representation. I'm afraid I don't think I have a very exciting solution. I've got a very simple solution, if that, uh. <laughs> that will do. I mean, my solution is just collect sex disaggregated data. You know, it's yeah. as simple as that. And it's so easy to do. And there's just no reason not to do it. Other than, of course, you know, as medical researchers say, the cost. But the reality <laughs> is that... The women who you're refusing to test in your clinical trials because of their messy hormones are going to be taking the drugs. So you're essentially doing the tests on them, but as guinea pigs and and the drugs aren't working. Another excuse that I just find one of the most incredible things that I've ever come across. And, and actually, it is an excuse that comes up fairly regularly is that because we've not tested in women before, uh, we can't start now because there's no comparable data. So sorry, ladies, you just screwed forever because of sexism in the past. I just don't believe someone who is really being cognizant of the fact that women are 50% of the population would come up with those type of excuses. Maybe I'm naive. I just I just don't think that they would. It doesn't make sense to me. Because that's one of the most remarkable things is that so many of us in so many situations can forget about women being an element of the world, even though they are approximately half of it. Not that it matters, but I, I think they're even slightly more than 50% of the population. Like, like it, yeah. it's, it, you would <laughs> think it would be pretty apparent all of the time. You know, that is one of the solutions. Because, you know, as I said, in that study about gender neutral words and what people are picturing, women are a bit better than men. We still suffer from male default, but we're a bit better. <laughs> we're slightly less likely to forget that women exist. And so that is one of the solutions to having sex disaggregated collect data collected and having researchers gender analyze that data is female representation. So studies that have been done, for example, in the medical world suggest that if there are women in the research team, and particularly if they're in a position of leadership in the research team, the research that that team does is much more likely to be gender analysed. It's partly that, that women are less likely to forget other women. But also, you know, it comes back to this idea of knowing what women need. So the Sheryl Sandberg story, but also if you look at the tech world, you know, it's, it's female entrepreneurs, when they do manage to get funding, who are developing tech that 
addresses what women need. So, you know, it was a woman who set up Clue, the the period tracker. It was a woman who set up LV, which is a pelvic floor exerciser. And, you know, she was fascinating to talk to, actually, because when she wanted to start this company, um, she obviously wanted to have some data on, you know, vaginas, for example. And there just wasn't really anything out there. <laughs> this is crazy. How can we not know about vaginas? You know, we don't really know much about pelvic floors either, even though they are a huge health issue for women because the more you give birth, the more likely you are as a woman for your pelvic floor to basically collapse. And so women who've given birth to, I think it's more than two children, have a much higher chance of their pelvic floor prolapsing, which basically means it drops through drops through into their vagina. And so this is why this woman developed this pelvic floor exerciser because it basically is a way of preventing that from happening. And the current treatment that we have for pelvic floor prolapse is a vaginal mesh, which is currently the subject of a medical scandal. A woman in Scotland um, has actually just died from it. And there are loads of women around the UK who are suffering in huge amounts of pain because of this sort of rather barbaric treatment that has been developed. And so, you know, this is an incredibly important piece of technology, which frankly shouldn't have been left to the private sector to develop. It's something that should have been developed publicly. But anyway, nevertheless, thankfully, a woman has developed it. But then similarly, you know, breast pumps, it's down to to female entrepreneurs. They're the ones who are trying to develop a breast pump that actually women will want to use. The difficulty that female entrepreneurs face, unfortunately, is that when they're trying to get funding, first of all, as you said earlier, the majority of venture capitalists are men. And so... 93%. I mean, there's a sort of double issue here. So first of all, because they're men, they are less likely to know what the issue is. And so they're going to need data to convince them. You know, I think if you went to a woman who had experienced how terrible the current breast pumps are and said, you know, give me this money, this is what my breast pump does. And if it was a credible breast pump, she would completely understand what the market was. You know, similarly, go to a woman and say, I want funding for this amazing drug that will stop period pain. You know, she'd be like, you know, how much money do you want? Just like, do it. Right. Um, (laughs) For men, because they don't experience this, and again, pointing to it not being conspiracy, it's just an issue of representation, they're going to need data to recognise and understand whether or not this is a credible business proposition. But of course, that's where you run into the problem. There just isn't very much data. So female entrepreneurs are more likely to need data in order to convince the majority male VCs to invest in them, but they're less likely to have it. So it's just this sort of huge (laughs) double irony. Especially reading about the um, pelvic floor issues, I I felt pretty silly because I think I had fully never heard of that to begin with even though apparently 37% of women have some kind of pelvic floor issue in their life Mm. and 10% will require a surgery for a a vaginal prolapse uh, Mm. that that happens to them. Well, again, you know, I wouldn't feel silly because I didn't know about it until I researched it and I am a woman because we don't talk about it. You know, and similarly, I didn't know about female heart attack symptoms. And again, I'm a woman. Um, This isn't about women and men. This is about the information that we're given, the information that gets put out in the media, in films, in education. And this goes from, you know, school education to university education to medical school. You know, doctors aren't being taught it. Um, 
So this is really a failure of public information and public education. I'm sure many listeners are like, what can I do? How can I help? Uh, and and <laughs> looking at politics before, I, I feel like, especially in U.S. politics, especially the last few years for very important and obvious reasons, we're going toward a point where it, it feels like there's a pretty clear pro-woman party and a pretty clear anti-woman party, even though there are mm -hmm. members of all genders in both. Is it as straightforward and simple as that in a number of countries? Like you mentioned that uh, maybe labor in the UK is more pro-women, as I understand it. Another labor party in Australia it would be the one there. Is it as simple as that or, or is it more of a complex thing? No, I think it's pretty complicated. I mean, Britain... <laughs> you may be aware politics is a total uh am i allowed to swear on this podcast oh especially about this yes okay it's a total shit show <laughs> um, <laughs> so we are going through this thing called brexit yes and we don't seem to be able to get anywhere on it and both the two main parties are a total disaster on brexit so i think a lot of people in the uk feel completely disenfranchised and and for me brexit is a feminist issue um, as well as, you know, just a sort of everything issue. Yeah. Because women are going to be disproportionately impacted by the fallout from Brexit. In an economic downturn, public services that women use are the ones that tend to be cut. And that has a knock-on effect on women's ability to engage in paid employment. So it drives up the pay gap. And then you've got issues like working employment standards, which the EU has sort of dragged the UK kicking and screaming towards having, you know, properly mandated maternity pay, having proper equal pay for work of equal value, you know, all sorts of legislation that the EU has kind of forced the UK to have that has forced the UK to be more progressive. And that's all the kind of thing that the people who are pushing Brexit are very vocal about wanting to get rid of. You know, you would hope that a pro-woman progressive party like Labour would be anti-Brexit. But unfortunately, they are led by a guy called Jeremy Corbyn, who is very anti-EU. Certainly yeah. for women in the UK, it's very hard to know who to vote for. In the book, you mentioned that the UK government had just sort of as a rubber stamp thing, like, yes, of course, we're going to keep the EU Human Rights Act as we Brexit. And then it took actually a Tory MP named Mar Maria Miller to say, hey, we should also keep the UK's gender equality law if we can. And people were like, yeah. oh, I guess. I mean, yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> Which is astounding. Uh, you, you would think those would both just be slam dunks. And, and it's surprising that a Tory uh, uh, came through on that. Well, yes, but I think it does also highlight the importance of female representation, you know. Yes. Yes, she's a Tory. <laughs> and I disagree with her on a lot of things. But she is still a woman and so is more likely to remember this little piece of legislation that exists called the Equality Act, which is an incredibly important piece of legislation because it brings together all the equalities legislation, including, you know, the Sex Discrimination Act from 1975 and all sorts of EU law that was put into UK law. It's the central piece of sex equality legislation in the UK. It's not to say, obviously, that all women are perfect and all women are feminists. I'm not saying that at all. It's, it's a numbers game. And if you have enough women, the likelihood is, based on the evidence, that you're going to end up with a legislature that is going to be more cognizant of, of women's rights and the things that women need. I mean, for example, another, another example is um, Andrea Leadsom, who, again, is a Tory and 
let me tell you, I cannot stand Andrea Ludsom. However, she did do something quite good, which was um, in the UK, because of the archaic way that our parliament works, you cannot vote unless you are in parliament in person. And so for women who are, for example, giving birth, that is something of a problem. Basically, women don't have maternity leave in the parliament, um, not any that's worth its salt. And so when a vote is happening and a woman can't be there, the only option that she had until recently was to do something called pairing, which is where you get the whips to agree of the opposing party that because you're not voting then someone they will assign someone in their party not to vote. And so your votes cancel each other out. And the problem with that is, first of all, it means that it looks like you just don't care about certain issues and people can look up and say, oh, look, at there was, there was one woman who had been on maternity leave sort of early on in her parliamentary career and she was outed in the sun as Britain's laziest MP and obviously got a lot of oh, hatred as a result of that. And actually it was just that she'd been on maternity leave and uh, she had done pairing. Um, So that's one issue. And obviously, that's something that disproportionately affects women. Yes, of course, men can be ill and not be able to turn up and whatever it is. But it's women who get pregnant and have to take time off to do that. The other issue is that pairing isn't always honoured. But Andrea Leadsom has been pushing along with a bunch of other female MPs, but because she is... Uh, the leader of the House of Commons, she is very important in pushing this through, um, has managed to get through what we're calling proxy voting, which is basically what it sounds like. You can assign someone to go and vote for you. And finally, in 2019, women have been given the right in our parliament. It took a long time and a lot of fighting to get there, which you know, is yeah. really ridiculous. Who would have a problem with proxy voting? But our parliament is ridiculous. And so they did. But anyway, you know, we finally got there and it was women who made that happen. And it's an incredibly important part of our democracy. You know, you can't just have that. You have to rely on this quote unquote gentleman's agreement. And I use the term gentleman advisedly, (laughs) Um, you know, clearly uh, based on a history of of a parliament that was designed not taking into account the idea that we would one day have women in it. Especially the UK parliament, as I understand it, just centuries of advances in terms of what it is. And I wonder if almost a solution to all sorts of these kind of things is just people being more comfortable with, used to, open to changing things because mm. uh, women exist and they just haven't been built for them. I was thinking about how in New Zealand, following this awful shooting that they've had, yes. they have just immediately changed their gun laws. And I was thinking, and, and I was listening to the radio this morning and they mentioned, you know, of course, New Zealand doesn't have it written into their constitution. They have a right to bear arms. Oh, and lucky them. So that, yeah. So, but that made me think about America and obviously the huge problems you guys have in trying to change your gun laws. But it just strikes me as so ridiculous that this thing that was written by men, and it was men, <laughs> you know, oh, hundreds yeah. of years ago, is held up as this thing that cannot be changed. I mean, it's not a natural law. It's a thing that was written by some men. <laughs> right, you know the, the the sort of mindset that this cannot be changed is sort of ridiculous. What it's it's like sort of um, you know biblical fundamentalists who think that what was written in the Bible thousands of years ago is, is something that we cannot change. If something is a natural law, it's a physical law. Okay, you can't change that. 
But a law that's written by men, you absolutely can change that. If 200 years later, it turns out, well, the world's kind of changed now. You know, women have rights. We're not importing people as slaves anymore. Like all sorts of things have changed. The world has (laughs) changed. And it's okay to say we now have different values to the ones we had back then. And and also, uh, because all these things are so complicated and interconnected, are there any things going on or or bubbling up that are... Uh, maybe some additional just positive changes on the horizon or or new movements, initiatives that seem particularly exciting for these things? Well, there, yeah, there are some, some organizations. So, for example, there is an organization backed by the UN called Data2x, which has the the sole sort of focus of trying to close the gender data gap when it comes to policy. You know, that's a great initiative, but obviously... It could do with more money and more attention and being able to have a, a more more impact. You know, it's going to have a limited impact given the huge scale of the problem it's trying to fix and the amount of, you know, actual funding and attention that it has. Similarly, you know, some legislation has been passed in the US for National Institute of Health funding. If you want to have National oh, Institute of Health funding, you should have, you know, human females in your clinical studies. And similarly, they've just passed legislation saying you should have uh, female animals in your studies. But it's not perfect in that they aren't doing a great job of tracking and enforcing it. And also that only applies to NIH funding. So the majority of drug trials are done by private companies. And also the majority of drug trials are actually on generic drugs. And for neither of those, is there any regulation or legislation about including men and women? And of course, then cell trials, as as we discussed earlier, you know, it's actually incredibly important to include female cells. But there's no regulation about that whatsoever in any sphere, in any country, actually, that I'm aware of. Yeah, sorry, you asked for positive things and that's not very positive. (laughs) But I think, you know, I mean, I suppose the hope is that there are people who are working on this, you know. I didn't sort of discover this on my own. I didn't set out and sort of discover the gender data gap in every area. My work is all based on the work of researchers in those fields who are fighting the good fight every day and who are trying to raise awareness of the issue and who are trying to change the way they're, the research in whatever area is that they're working in are done. So, you know, there's this amazing woman in Sweden who is single-handedly basically trying to force the EU to include a anthropometric female crash test dummy in their uh, wow. regulatory tests, for example. There are some great people, or in Canada, this amazing husband and wife team who are doing incredible research on occupational health when it comes to women. But the problem is that these are just a few people and they're on their own and they don't have a lot of funding. And so really, one of the reasons for writing the book for me is to bring awareness not only to the fact that this is a big problem and that it needs sorting and that women are dying, but also that there are these amazing people around the world who are trying very hard to do something about it, but are, you know, really pushing a massive heavy stone uphill. So they need a lot more funding and they need a lot more help and they need a lot more people to join them in their various fields. Folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks to Caroline Criado-Perez for making the time and just researching the often completely unresearchable, the the task of writing this book. 
I'm I'm still amazed by it. There's so much to figure out in the first place and just the little data we have to triangulate it. It's amazing. And so, of course, in our footnotes, you will, of course, find a link to Invisible Women, Data Bias in a World Designed for Men by Caroline Criado Perez. You will also find links about her work keeping women on British money outside of the Queen. That's sort of a gimme. And also about getting statues and other representation for women in the world. You will also find links to things like Data2x and other initiatives and developments and just positive things that are going on because uh, they are out there. And it's it sort of speaks to how massive this gap is, that there are so many things that need filling in. Uh, but also, I am glad that so many people like Caroline are doing it. And one other thing in the food notes, links to get tickets to our extremely imminent live shows in the Midwest. We are in Chicago at Lincoln Hall on April 11th with guests Sarah Sherman, Maya Dukmasova, and Jane Daly. Then we are in St. Paul, Minnesota at Amsterdam Bar and Hall on April 12th with guests John Moe, Chloe Radcliffe, and Elaine Tyler May. You can get tickets in the food notes, and I, I really hope you'll come out and see them because, uh, you know, I don't get to go and do this show on the road pretty much ever. So this is going to be great. I'm very, very excited, and I've been looking forward to this for a long time. And beyond that, uh, the Budos Band made a song called Chicago Falcon. It is our theme music. They also happen to have an album coming out April 12th. It's called Budos Band 5. Uh, The two songs I've heard from it really, really slap. Uh, So I hope you'll check out the whole album when it comes out. This episode came together thanks to a team of people all over. Uh, I'm in Los Angeles with engineer Ryan Connor, and then we had the enormous help of Liam Clayton at Wise Buddha Studios in London engineering there. Also special thanks to Nick Casenza at Guilt Free Post for helping set this up. Extra special thanks to Colin Anderson and Hannah Crichton for arranging it as well. This was a transatlantic, many-headed affair, and I'm glad we could do it. Then, this episode was edited by the wonderful Chris Souza, pulling it together from across the ocean. And if you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A space where in the 2016 Democratic primary, Hillary Clinton received almost two times as many abusive tweets as Bernie Sanders did. And at the same time in Australia, their prime minister, Julia Gillard, received almost twice as many abusive tweets as her rival in that party, Kevin Rudd, in the Labour Party there. Uh, So it's across a lot of democracies. And hey, Twitter was pretty much just designed by men. So maybe that's part of why that's happening. In the meantime, I mainly tweet about Snoopy, and I think that's what most people should be doing. My Twitter account is at Alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alex Schmitzstagram. And I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. And I'm here to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.